Welcome to the Marketing Science Podcast, the podcast for sales and marketing professionals working within science, engineering, and healthcare. My name is Danny Lazel, your co-host for season three. This week's guest is Katie Hart. Katie is an acclaimed international speaker, trainer, and researcher in the exciting new field of neuromarketing. Don't forget to subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite podcast player. If you would like to learn more information about how to run a scientific podcast, then visit azonetwork.com forward slash podcasts. I started this week's episode by asking Katie to explain exactly what neuromarketing is. Neuromarketing is a really exciting field which is emerging, which brings knowledge from the academic world of neuroscience into the marketing arena. So by neuroscience, what we're talking about is knowledge about particularly our brains and the way our brains work, but also all of our nervous systems. So how we how we get information through our senses and things like that. And so it's the information about how we literally perceive the world, how some things attract our attention and other things don't, how we make decisions, how memories are formed, all of these absolutely fascinating areas which we can now apply to marketing to make our marketing messages and materials more effective. So is neuromarketing a fairly new idea or is it just that there's been an increased awareness about it more recently? It, it's Yeah, I think it's... I mean, it's relatively new. You know, originally, if you wanted to know what was going on in the brain, you had to actually drill through the skull and into it. So I think that limited us in terms of of what we could discover about the brain. And of course, if you look at the brain, it doesn't actually reveal anything much from the outside. It's not like lungs that inflate or a heart that pumps. The brain to study is really difficult. So technology has now enabled us to really be able to interrogate what's going on inside the brain in a non-invasive way for the first time. So that's opened up this whole field of of neuroscience. Um, And I think alongside that, it's really gained momentum since that technology has become more accessible. So for instance, being able to use headsets that can measure what's going on inside the brain as people are actually walking around an environment around a supermarket or around a tube station it's so much more powerful now because when it first came out we had to do them all in um, functional mri scanners which are you know not accessible and you know (laughs) certainly not mobile so it's partly really that progression and that development of technology which has meant the the pace of knowledge and the the speed at which it's being implemented has really increased recently yeah so you mentioned the headsets i wanted to talk about the sort of the practical the practical side of things uh, in a little bit but just before we do that I want to ask, is this at the moment, is this predominantly academic research or is it being applied to sort of B2B marketing? Uh, the honest answer is it's been applied to B2B and B2C marketing for quite some time now. So, yes, it started off in academic research and a lot of the big sort of research budgets still are retained within academia. However, it's it's information which has a value. And so it, commercially, it has been out in the marketplace for a while. So it is something that is in use. Uh, I think perhaps it's more used in B2C arenas. Um, However, yeah, there's a lot of merit for it being used in B2B. I did a big piece of research uh, a year ago in the B2B market, 
And, it, you know, absolutely, although we are decision-making units, so we would like to think perhaps in a B2B environment, we're even more rational with those decisions that we make. <laughs> Actually, we're not. You know, we are still humans. We are still brains that are making those decisions. So it's absolutely as applicable there. Would you be able to talk a bit about the, the research you did last year? Yeah, of course. Um, so it was research which was carried out to look into the particular preferences of the brain when looking at a variety of different platforms um, and different designs. So we were focusing particularly on landing pages on websites and um, presenting the same information a number of different ways and just looking to see which of the layouts the brain found easiest to read, most engaging, most compelling, which it was most drawn to, which had the longest sort of legacy in terms of um, memory. Uh, and we also looked at different versions of emails. So a lot of us in B2B are sending out emails to people. And we were exploring what the, again, the most engaging, most interesting, easiest format of emails to send out actually were. So we had, we had 19 different web layouts and nine different email formats that we trialed. Uh, in terms of results, were there any sort of recurring themes that you found? Um, patterns, demographic patterns, things like that? I don't think it's a popular answer. <laughs> in terms of emails, the easiest, the most accessible, the most engaging one, surprise, surprise, was actually standard Outlook. Um, so we included a number of different GIFs and formats. Um, obviously, with a lot of GIFs, they don't download directly, so that creates a lot of problems, and a lot of the, the visual appeal of that is therefore lost. Um, but we also split the subjects who took part in that into different categories in terms of their senior seniority within an organization. And we found quite clear polarization that the more um, the more time somebody had spent in a corporate environment, the more they preferred Outlook. So the interns and the junior people weren't really so impressed by it. I think they liked some of the more visual styles. Um, however, the people who were more familiar, perhaps more comfortable with the Outlook format, really engaged with it and connected it in a totally different way. So it's a, I'm afraid the key take-home message there is really know your audience because, yeah, we don't all want the same things. Yeah, so, so we're forever talking to our clients about knowing their audience and making sure that they are segmenting properly. So Absolutely. I think that's a, a, that's a, good, a good tip for, for people listening to take away. Um, and something I saw just before this call, we were working on an email to go out, an email newsletter to go out, so we might have to rethink <laughs> some of the creatives <laughs> that go into that. Sorry about that. <laughs> you I should have sent it beforehand. Never mind. <laughs> um, so in terms of practicality, so how how is this done? So you say you're working with a client, you have a um, set amount of uh, subjects that you use for the case study. How does it work? Do they wear? I'm talking about practically wearing the, the item. Is it... Um, invasive in any way is it it's it's here i can show you it so this is uh this is an eeg headset which you would just place over somebody's head similar to that and then these sensors are positioned in particular points on the skull and so what they do is they measure the electrical activity that's going on in the brain underneath that particular part of the the skull so it's it's not particularly invasive. I mean, certainly when EEG is done in a scientific or in an academic laboratory, they are much more complex. So they're the sort of fishing hats, not fishing hats, mm. swimming hats that you see that have um, up to 100 sensors on them. 
What has happened over time is people have realized where the most prominent areas of the brain to record actually are. So it's been sort of distilled and refined down. So these sensors, these headsets that we can use, um, it takes about six minutes to get it um, calibrated for somebody to get all the sensors in the right position to check we've got efficient contact. Um, and it's all Bluetooth, so they're not restricted by wires, which again, a lot of the sets that are used in um, academic labs are, you know, literally fistfuls of cables that are trailing across the floor. So the the idea is that it's possible, I mean, um, some of the research I've been doing at the moment, I get people to come into the office and we put the headset on. And as I say, six to eight minutes at the most, and they're up and running. And then we can present them with almost anything. So it can be physical, tangible products or packaging that you want them to manipulate. Um, it can be visuals. So quite often they are slides or um, videos that we want people to watch, things like that. One of the exceptions with the headsets I use is taste because it's measuring electrical activity and your jaw muscles start quite high up down the side of your down the side of your face so actually just the process of chewing can skew some of the results and create um, very different anomalies however you know we can get around that if we know in advance that that's what what's required so in theory it can be almost anything it can be smells it can be touched it can be sound um, and the brain will just respond i mean that's the beauty of neuromarketing is it isn't possible for us to control that so we get a very raw response of the brain doing its thing you know it's constantly assessing the environment around us and working out whether something is threatening or whether it's something that we like and we are attracted to and engage with whether it's easy for us to um, take in a piece of information or whether it takes a lot of our brain capacity and brain resource to make sense of it all of this is available to us which is far richer and far more detailed than we can get through conventional methods of market research Yes, so that um, the headset you just showed me looks very straightforward. Is there any limitations other than the one you just mentioned about using that as opposed to the ones you would tend to use in the laboratory? Um, are you getting the same results or are there any limitations there? Uh, there are limitations. I mean, the, the ideal scenario is to use things like functional magnetic resonance imaging machines or even a PET scanner, which are incredibly detailed, incredibly sophisticated, complex pieces of machinery. They are phenomenally, well, prohibitively expensive to use for most people's market research. So what we actually do is um, the software and the headsets and things that we use are based on findings from thousands of hours in PET scanners or fMRI machines, which pinpoint really intricately where particular areas of the brain are stimulated when somebody is either feeling a certain emotion or if they're conducting a particular task. So what we can do is take the results from a less complex, a less sophisticated piece of machinery, but is far more mobile, and then retrospectively work from that and say, in the vast majority of instances, if somebody's brain is registering activity here, it means this is what's going on. So yes, there are limitations. It isn't as great as some of the more um, academic and laboratory-based work, but it is far easier and it's far... <laughs> It's far more easy for me to get volunteers for a start than to, you know, to get them into an academic environment, which would then take, you know, 
possibly half a day for them. It's quite claustrophobic being in a fMRI scanner as well. And it's it's quite an intimidating process, which you then have to have to mitigate. You have to sort of take that away from their responses because obviously they're in a, a state of heightened anxiety and stress before you even start the study. So Yes, there are limitations, but there are also huge advantages too. So it's about finding finding the right balance. Okay. But I mean, in neuros in neuromarketing, we also use galvanic skin response. Um, we use eye tracking equipment. So there's lots of different technologies that we can use, and it's really about selecting the best the, the best technology or sometimes combination of technologies depending on the requirement. That's great. Can you tell speak a little bit more about the eye tracking technology? Sounds very interesting. We rarely, in in what I do, we rarely use the eye tracking technology on its own. Um, but it does come it, it come into a field where we would then use it alongside um, the headset, for instance. So you know exactly wh- which area of the page or which part of the um, content somebody was reading when their brain responds in a certain way. So the headsets are literally recording milliseconds um, the activity on the brain. So you can get an extremely fast response. And by using the eye tracking equipment alongside it, you can tell exactly what it is they were looking at when that response was elicited. So it makes it much more powerful rather than a general overview of this page created that response. On average, you can get really specific about when they were reading that bit of text in the call to action button, their brain responded with that sort of emotion. So it makes it really defined and really precise. Okay, I want to talk a bit about the the emotional responses from the volunteers. So how many volunteers would you normally normally use for 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 this experiment? Uh, it, it varies. I'm afraid the honest answer is it usually is uh, dictated by budget. Um, so the B2B study that we were talking about earlier, we had 87 participants. I'm just doing some work for Unilever at the moment that we've got 20 participants and that's a that's a pilot project. So it's really about what we're trying to achieve. We want sufficient volume that it's going to give us enough of a enough confidence really in the results to be able to extrapolate out from those. But at the same time, there are often budgetary limitations. So it's trying to get that balance right. Um, you know, in any study, the more subjects, the more participants you can have, the better. However, Sadly, you know, as I say, it takes takes time to get everybody installed into a headset to go through the experiment with them. So it's nothing like as as cost effective as perhaps doing a you know an online survey when you can wrap up thousands of responses in quite a short amount of time. Sure, but the beauty of this is in an online survey, I guess people are giving interpreted answers, so it's not yeah. necessarily their subconscious. Whereas what you're doing is. A much deeper understanding of of what they is they're actually thinking. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, the the sort of conventional wisdom is that it's something like ten to fifteen percent of what goes into our decision making is all that we are consciously aware of. Whereas with the neuroscience and applying that, we can actually interrogate that eighty five to ninety percent that we aren't consciously aware of. And what's been found consistently over time is that by measuring those physiological responses, those subconscious responses that we elicit, those end up being the predictors of future behavior. Despite what we may overtly report, it's actually physiological responses that then drive us and our decision making in real world scenarios. 
Yeah, it's, it's stats like that that fascinate me and blow my mind at the, <laughs> at the same time. Uh, it gives so many things to think about. Um, in terms of, so we're, we're doing the, if we take the landing page uh, that you were talking about before, yeah, um, and you've got your volunteers, what emotional responses are you measuring and what the different responses tell you uh, about what that person's thinking? So we tend to have six key metrics that we are responding on in a study like that and they range from engagement so that's sort of how how much people are focusing how much they're concentrating on what they're seeing there is one which is interest so that's quite straightforward am i interested in what i'm seeing does it attract me or am i averted and sort of put off from it we have one which looks at, we call it stress, but it's not perhaps the, the usual use of the word stress. It's much more about the, the resource requirement. So is it challenging for me to actually look at what is being presented to me? Is it quite easy? Is it quite comfortable for me to, you know, if there's lots of white space, it's much easier on the brain. Whereas if it's a really fragmented or complex image, then the brain resource is, is much higher. Um, we also look at things like um, relaxation. So the brain wants to be quite relaxed. You know, if it's able to make good decisions, we want it to be able to be performing at its optimum level. But also relaxation is quite interesting in terms of marketing, because if somebody is too relaxed, then it we think that is a, an indicator of the fact that the images they're looking at or the content they're reading doesn't have any sort of legacy there is there is no sort of memory trace being created in that at all so we actually want to get a, a nice sort of midway balance there for people so there are yeah there are a number of different metrics that we measure that actually start to indicate for us another one is focus so um, quite often particularly when we look at images if the image itself is too complex the focus is is diverted, so it's sort of split in lots of different directions, and and that can be really quite devastating because often your your message, your key message, gets lost if it's again in quite a fragmented environment. So these are the sort of metrics that we measure as we as we undertake most of the studies that I do. And then, when you present these metrics to to marketers, are you involved in then advising what they should what their landing pages should look like, or is then do you just leave that to them to to make their decisions? <laughs> It, it can go either way. I mean, yeah, very often that, you know, I try to make it really accessible so that the information I provide people can go away and implement that um, themselves. However, sometimes there is a bit of a, I suppose it's a confidence thing with applying some of this. And, you know, they, they like to have a bit of coaching or a bit of sort of support um, in the initial stages of transition, because it can feel quite different from what they've been doing in the past. So, yeah, quite often I can work with people and help them apply some of these. Um, what we've also had done is off the back of research like this, people have then gone out and done split tests where they've tried to implement it and seen seen what the results are and seen what effects have been as a result of, you know, perhaps an initial foray where they've dabbled in some of it but haven't been able to implement everything as as quickly as they would like to and then that sometimes builds confidence in the more senior people within an organization that actually some of the more radical changes should be should be implemented too so that brings me on to a, another question so how easy is it to convince the people making budgetary decisions that this is worth the expense um <laughs> It's, it's horses for courses. Um, 
I, you know, some organizations are very open to it. Um, some organizations uh, are actively seeking it out. They know that neuromarketing has tremendous power and tremendous opportunity, and they want to, they want to capture that competitive advantage before any of their competitors do. Other people are more resistant and more reluctant. Um, there's one organization that I worked with a number of years ago that I actually ended up putting a headset onto the financial director um, in the presentation that I did. So um, I'd been told by the marketing director that he was this particular individual was quite resistant. So I said, you know, let, let's put it on. Let's see, you know, I can show you how your brain is responding to what I'm demonstrating. And, and it was absolutely fantastic that it was such a powerful demonstration of me being able to interpret everything that he was uh, resistant to disengaged with any areas of the presentation that he, you know, found really complex or, you know, wasn't, wasn't interested in, I could present all of that back to him. And from that, from that point, the, the door just opened, you know, there was, <laughs> there was no more criticisms to come from here at all. Because I think once you've seen that, and you've seen it in yourself, the opportunity to, to know your customers at that level is just, yeah, just so powerful. So did they respond to that in a, in a positive way when you were able to show them this or did they were they a bit defensive still? I, I think he realized that you know his concerns were very obvious. Um, he you know as, as financial director, clearly his role is to protect the the expenditure of the organization and the investment and he was doing that brilliantly. but I don't think he'd really seen the the benefit that this technology could bring. However, when we used it on him, he initially was a bit sort of cagey and a bit embarrassed by it. But having had it interpreted and having seen the results, um, literally, as I say, the, the doors opened and he was he's become one of my strongest advocates, actually. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, that but that was a you know, that was a fairly exceptional situation where the managing uh, the marketing director knew his team really well and knew who we needed to pick off within there. Um, so, yeah, that was that was a lovely moment to really see so powerfully that that turning point for somebody. But very often in other organizations, you know, it does come down to decisions about actually, you know, if you compare the spend on some research like this to the spend on reach, for instance, for a, you know, for boosting a social media campaign or, you know, achieving some of their other targets, this is quite often a nice to have. However, the argument I'm usually saying to people is that you know, if you can invest in this now, then you've got complete confidence that all the messages you're then spending and boosting and putting out into your your customers' environment are going to be so much more powerful and create a different level of engagement for them. But it's you know now is sometimes not the right time for people, and you know they keep doing what they've always been doing and. Mm. And I respect that, you know, there's, <laughs> it's an emerging field, there are still suspicions around it, there are still issues around it. So it's it's not going to be right for everybody. Yeah, I wanted to touch on those issues and suspicions. But just one last question about um, how it works practically. So these techniques can presumably be adapted to any sort of copy, any sort of image, any sort of video. So if it's your display advertising, social media advertising, uh, your blog piece, anything, these techniques can be used to, to test those. Absolutely. And the minutia within them. So particular fonts, um, you know, particular images that, that are used, absolutely everything. Um, Google, uh, Google did an amazing piece of research where they ended up changing the font, no, changing the shade of blue that their hyperlinks use 
Um, and, you know, that's something that's imperceptible to most of us. But they'd realised that it was having quite a profound difference in terms of people's click throughs. Um, and so they did some research where they investigated, I think it was over 40 different shades of blue that they trialled. And they selected one which performed far in excess of the others. And as a result of just that one change, they claim that they've got a $200 million a year increase in advertising revenue. Oh, wow. So some of these can be really, really tiny changes, um, but with extremely powerful effect. Yeah, I've, I've heard you talk about the Pepsi versus Coke uh, experiment before and how blind tasting people tend to prefer Pepsi. Can you just explain yep. the, the reasons behind that? Yes, I mean it's a you know it's a, um, a sort of campaign that has been around for years, hasn't it? The old Pepsi challenge, um, and people could never understand why when um, subjects were asked to take the Pepsi challenge, they always well not always the majority preferred Pepsi. So the idea was that you would be in a supermarket or in a shopping mall or somewhere, and you'd be asked to taste two small samples of drink. One would be Pepsi, and one would be Coke. And when you were asked which one you preferred, most people preferred Pepsi. Now, that that was really hard for people to understand because actually that didn't translate into market share. People then went into the supermarket and carried on buying Coke off the shelf. And so both, you know, Pepsi were obviously quite frustrated by this. But neuroscience has helped us to answer that because what we can now see is what's going on in the brain as people are conducting those taste tests. Um, and one of the justifications is that we can see an area of the brain being activated, which is really quite base. So it's a sort of evolutionary drive, which we think is hardwired to sort of seek out sweet foods. So if you think back to sort of caveman times, you know, some really sweet berries or something would have given us such a boost of nutrients and vitamins and things that perhaps would only have had a really short availability within our season. So the, the brain is really excited by this and it, you know, it responds really positively. However, sustaining that isn't so great within the brain. So the difference between having a small taste sample and drinking an entire can of Pepsi, a lot of people find an entire can actually is too sweet. The other thing that was noticed though, is that when people know what they're drinking, so instead of it being a blind taste test, when people actually know and when the samples are labeled, people prefer the Coke. And you can see when that they are conducting those experiments through using some of the neuroscience technology, that it's activating the core emotional part of the brain. Um, so we believe that this is bringing in the, the stronger emotional connection, which people tend to have to the Coca-Cola brand, which, you know, looks at, you know, the holidays are coming and Santa and, you know, the Coke break and all sorts of things which are much more deeply entrenched. So it's a, a lot about the value of that Coke brand. And the, the neuroscience study which looked into this said if you wiped people's brains, if you took away any prior knowledge of the two brands, the likelihood is that Pepsi would be the winner. Pepsi would be the outcome um, as a result of this sort of evolutionary drive. However, when we go into the supermarket and we're standing in front making a snap decision about what to grab, we've got all of that nostalgia and all of those emotions available to us. So they very much work in Coca-Cola's favour. 
and flavour. <laughs> and flavour, yeah, Freudian slip. <laughs> um, you mentioned a bit before about the potential concerns about these techniques being misused. What are those concerns and what's being done about them, if anything? Yeah, I think, um, you know, I think there is, because it is so powerful, um, you know, myself as a neuromarketer, I love all of this. I'm really excited by the potential of it, but I still don't want to feel that it's being used on me too often. You know, it's that difference between knowing that my decision is being influenced and knowing my decision is being manipulated. You know, we, we all want to make informed decisions, but we all want to feel that we ultimately are still making that decision. So some of the technology which can bypass what we are consciously aware of obviously um, has some huge ethical issues around it. Uh, at the moment, those ethics are struggling to keep pace with the technology and the ability to apply it to marketing situations. So a lot of that is coming down to individual people and individual organisations and their their sort of their own code of conduct and their own sort of preferences. So, for instance, I know. Um, a lot of my peers refuse to work with tobacco industry or, um, you know, anybody that's working with alcohol that could potentially be perceived as being marketed to teens or young adults, for instance. Um, gambling, again, is another one that some people choose to steer well clear of. So at the moment, it feels like it's more about individual people policing their own ethics, their own sort of standards, as opposed to there being one sort of consistent message across the board. But there are, you know, there are organisations who are working on that and who are absolutely trying to draw something together so that we don't go back into that sort of subliminal advertising um, controversy that we had back in the, what was it, sort of 60s and 70s. Yeah, so is that, um, is that are those private companies that are working on that or is this public companies, governments trying to, is it a case of what we've seen with advertising where they're always trying to catch up and they bring out these new laws uh, designed to help the user, but maybe three or four years too late, maybe longer sometimes. Is that is that what's happening here? I'm afraid, yeah, there's a lot of familiarity in that. Having said that, though, so people like, you know, the, the research societies are very aware, you know, they are engaged and sort of at the, perhaps closer to the forefront of this than some of the government um, organisations are. So, yeah, I do feel as though at the moment it is too reactive. Um, I think it needs to be it needs to be really grasped and grasped quickly because, as I say, it is progressing and the whole the whole field is progressing. The technology is progressing. And, you know, all that time, it means the costs are reducing. And, you know, we're all trying to work to make it accessible to anybody who wants this. Um, and, you know, that we appreciate that that can be people who don't always have the most positive intentions for it. You know, it is a, a huge commercial advantage to people. So. Yeah, I think there is a, a long there is a long road before some of the organisations catch up with where we are now, let alone get ahead to where we need people to be. So if you were going to say five years' time, what would, where would you say neuromarketing is going to be at that point? I, I hope it will be much more mainstream. I hope it will be more available for people. Um, I mean, I, I still do a lot in the academic arena as well, um, and I sometimes get frustrated with how collaborative the academic world is and how competitive the corporate world is. So I think it would be lovely to, to bring some of those organisations together more than has happened um, to date. 
because I think there is a huge amount that organisations can learn if they are more collaborative and more open to partnerships and to sharing. Um, and I think that can only help in terms of the outcomes from the research and the ability to actually conduct some of this research too. So I, I would hope that it's it's more available, we've got more answers, we've got less suspicion around it, and ultimately that we all have a recognized code of conduct that we sign up to, that we adhere to, so that us as consumers can be completely confident that we are respected and that we are appreciated in that most most sort of personal of human transactions. Katie, you speak so passionately about the whole subject of neuromarketing. What is it that got you interested in the first place, and what is it that keeps you keeps you uh, interested in the in the area? Um, I'm a junkie. I love people. I'm I'm completely fascinated by people and why we do the things we do and why we make the decisions we make and how how different we can all be. You know, as as parents, I've got I've got two children totally different you know they have amazing talents and abilities but they're not the same even though they've grown up in the same environment from the same gene pool and and things like that just start to make me wonder what else is going on you know how can how can we understand and how can we really celebrate all of those differences so that that's what got me into uh, neuromarketing in the first place I came from a psychology background that then sort of went into consumer behavior. Um, and then the more I explored neuroscience and the advances that it's making, it just is so exciting. And, and that's what keeps me there is the fact that the, you know, every week the journals are full of new discoveries, new opportunities, new insights that we've been able to, to really make into this most complex organism that we've got which which drives us which does everything from regulating our temperature to you know controlling notifying us about pain through to making decisions about you know which holiday we're going to go on or you know what I'm going to eat off the takeaway menu it's I just find it so fascinating and insightful that I don't think I'll ever tire of it (laughs) (laughs) yeah I just worry every time I look at a takeaway menu too many options (laughs) Um, so if anyone who's listening wants to find out more about yourself we'll put your linkedin links and your website link in the in the notes of the podcast what about additional reading is there anything that they can they can study or or read up on to to learn more about this area yes i mean as i say there's lots it's emerging slowly um you know there's a huge amount that's coming out of the academic institutions but it does take time for it to then convert into sort of books and things but um uh, robert caldini is a great place to start um he's done something he did a book called brain fluence which is really interesting and really accessible on lots of different hints and tips you can use day to day to to support your marketing um biology another one martin lindstrom is a fascinating look martin and his lab have the fmri scanners so they were some of the first ones with all this knowledge and and information so yeah there's lots out there so i really would suggest you go and have a look um and brace yourself because once you start you may well get sucked in (laughs) i know i did we'll put links to all those uh, resources in the notes and katie it's it's fascinating stuff i could talk about this for hours i think but uh, i'll let you get back to the rest of your day thank you very much for for joining the podcast and uh take care you're welcome thank you very much
Thanks to Katie for those fascinating insights into the world of neuromarketing. If you've enjoyed listening, then you can subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite podcast player. I'll be back next Monday with another exciting guest for the marketing science community. We hope you can join us then. And until next time, take care and thanks for listening.